Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 18 called The Defeat of Palmyra. In the last episode, we heard about the Emperor Aurelian, who was one of the greatest Roman emperors, in my opinion, and his campaigns to restore the Roman Empire must rank among the most exciting in all of Roman history, equal to Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, and in their true significance, just as important as the Carthaginian Wars that nearly destroyed Rome. But they're not as widely known as they should be, and I think this is due to a lack of source material compared with those earlier Roman periods, especially the late Republic and the Empire of the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, when Rome was at its height and there were so many great Roman writers like Livy, Tacitus, Suetonius, Virgil, and the list could go on and on. In contrast, for Aurelian's reign and the crisis of the 3rd century, we don't have any literary greats and instead we have a number of sometimes conflicting sources and some sources that are seen as suspect like the famous Augustan history. Consequently historians tend not to devote as much time to Aurelian as he merits which I think is a great shame. So let's make up for that in this podcast and in the last episode we left Aurelian victorious over the Palmyrans at the Battle of Imai in 272 and with Antioch recaptured. But the war with Palmyra was far from over, especially as Aurelian would need to capture the Palmyrian capital itself, which had vast fortifications. And before I tell you what happened next, let me just read a short extract from Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which you'll be very used to my referring to by now, since it is such a wonderful narrative history, and it contains a superb description of the fabled city of Palmyra. Quote, amid the barren deserts of Arabia, a few cultivated spots rise like islands out of the sandy ocean. The name of Palmyra denoted the multitude of palm trees which afforded shade and greenery to that inhospitable region. The air was pure and the soil, watered by some invaluable springs, was capable of producing fruits as well as corn. A place possessed of such singular advantages and situated at a convenient distance between the Gulf of Persia and the Mediterranean, was soon frequented by the caravans which conveyed to the nations of Europe a considerable part of the rich commodities of India. Palmyra grew to be an opulent and independent city, and connecting the Roman and the Parthian monarchies by the mutual benefits of commerce, was suffered to observe a humble neutrality, till at length, after the victories of the Emperor Trajan, the little republic sank into the shadow of Rome, and flourished more than 150 years in the subordinate, though honourable, rank of a colony. It was during that peaceful period, if we may judge from a few remaining inscriptions that the wealthy Palmyrans constructed those temples, palaces and porticos of Grecian architecture whose ruins scattered over an extent of several miles have deserved the curiosity of our travellers. The elevation of Odonathus and Zenobia appeared to reflect new splendour on their country and Palmyra for a while stood forth the rival of Rome, but the competition was fatal, and this age of prosperity was sacrificed to a brief moment of glory. End quote. Now let's get back to Aurelian. Hope you enjoy it. 
After his victory at Imai in 272, Aurelian knew that Zenobia would deploy the entire remaining Palmyran army in the next battle. So he paused to wait for reinforcements to arrive, including fresh legionary detachments who had been garrisoning the upper Euphrates Valley and a large contingent of Palestinian auxiliaries armed with clubs and maces. They would prove their worth in the next encounter. Before advancing on Palmyra, he dispatched an infantry unit to recapture the Acropolis at Daphne, a town close to Antioch, where a Palmyran garrison was still holding out. The incident is interesting for the light it throws on the quality of Aurelian's legionaries. For although the cavalry was now the elite of the Roman army, a unit of legionaries is said to have shown exceptional discipline and skill in capturing the Acropolis. Using the renowned Testudo, or tortoise formation, which the Roman infantry had used for many centuries. They advanced up the hill, holding their shields overhead to protect them from the rain of missiles which the Palmyrans threw at them. Without once breaking formation, although taking some casualties, the legionaries made it to the top of the steep hill, whereupon they broke formation and quickly dispatched the defenders, apparently pushing many of them over a precipice. Aurelian's policy of showing clemency to those he conquered was also starting to pay dividends. As he advanced towards Palmyra, every Syrian town and city threw open its gates to the Romans and Aurelian was welcomed as a liberator. His success seemed to know no bounds. But he still had to face the Palmyran army again, which this time was drawn up on the plain before Amisa determined to bring the Romans to a halt before they reached Palmyra itself. And this time the Palmyrans deployed their entire army, said to be 70,000 strong by the Roman chroniclers, although this is almost certainly an exaggeration. Worryingly for Aurelian, it also contained every last cataphract the Palmyrans could muster. So Aurelian decided to use the same tactic that had worked so well at the Battle of Imai. His cavalry tried to lure the cataphracts into a charge with a feigned retreat, but seldom does the same trick work well twice. The cataphracts were expecting this and made sure that their charge was fast and furious enough to catch the retreating Romans. A fierce battle ensued and the Roman cavalry was forced into a genuine retreat, taking heavy casualties. For a moment, it looked as if the Roman army would be defeated. But just at that vital moment when the Palmyrans were pursuing the shattered Roman horsemen, Aurelian executed another of his brilliant manoeuvres. Seeing that the cataphracts had advanced too far and were exposed on their flanks, he ordered the disciplined Roman infantry waiting in their formations to turn around and pursue them. The cataphracts were trapped. A furious battle ensued, with the Roman cavalry taking heavy casualties, but the legionaries closed in on the cataphracts, hurling spears at them and slashing at them with their long swords. Apparently, the Palestinian auxiliaries were particularly effective, smashing their clubs into the armoured horsemen and bringing down hundreds of them. The legionaries did the rest of the work, with the cataphracts almost completely eliminated. The legionaries turned round to face the lightly armed Palmyran infantry. Their attack was so ferocious 
that the Palmyrans broke and fled with the Romans in hot pursuit. Almost the entire Palmyran army was destroyed with huge casualties. The remaining towns still occupied by the Palmyrans knew that Aurelian was now close to a complete victory. Emesa threw open its gates and welcomed him in, as did every other Syrian town and city. All that now remained was Palmyra itself, to which Zenobia, her general Zabdas, and what remained of the Palmyran army had fled. Aurelian advanced on the city, which was at the height of its prosperity and one of the largest and best defended in all of Asia Minor. Surrounded by high walls, the Palmyrans were able to hold out for over a month and showed considerable defiance, using their archery skills to pick off Roman soldiers that came too close. Indeed, one source says that Aurelian himself was wounded by an arrow. A Roman chronicler also recounted a story that Palmyran morale was maintained by a man with a particularly loud voice who would every day climb onto the highest part of the city walls, supposedly out of bowshot, and cry out particularly crude personal insults about Aurelian, which were greeted with laughter and cheering by the Palmyrans. However, one day an auxiliary Persian archer working for the Romans approached Aurelian with the boast that he could shoot the man down. The Persians and Palmyrans were great rivals in archery skills, and his boast amused Aurelian, who agreed to provide a unit of legionaries to shield him so that he could get close enough to the walls to take a shot at the man. The Persian was delighted with this, and surrounded by legionary shields, he advanced up to the wall. Then with one shot, he was as good as his word, and hit the man in the chest, who fell headlong from the walls to the ground. The Palmyrans stopped cheering. But the Palmyran defence was strong and Aurelian still couldn't take the city by storm. Nevertheless, inside the city, things were getting desperate. The Palmyrans didn't have enough provisions to last much longer. There was only one place they could look to for help, Persia. Persia had been surprisingly quiet during the 260s and 70s, given its remarkable reincarnation under the Sasanians, which had led to its resounding victories over the Romans, in particular Valerian's defeat and capture at the Battle of Edessa in 260. Unfortunately, an almost complete lack of source material for this period leaves us with little insight into what really happened. But the surprising rise of Palmyra, with Odonathus routing Shapur's victorious army and advancing to the Persian capital Ctesiphon itself in 264, may have prompted some form of internal dissension. For it seems that there was strife among the Iranian aristocracy and perhaps challenges to Shapur's rule. Another reason for Sasanian inactivity could have been Shapur's own failing health in the lead-up to his premature death in 270. After he died, Persia was distracted by a civil war, which blighted the reigns of his sons. During Rome's wars with Palmyra from 270 to 274, Persia was ruled by two of his sons in quick succession, Homid I and Bahram I, who seemed to have had none of Shapur's energy or charisma and remained 
preoccupied with internal politics. Another reason for Sasanian inactivity may have been that they were playing a waiting game while the Romans and Palmyrans fought it out. Certainly, they had no love for Palmyra. Nevertheless, in late 272, with the Romans about to force Palmyra into surrender, Zenobia decided that her last chance was to appeal to Persia for help. Hoping that the Sasanians would not want a complete Roman victory over Palmyra, she sent envoys to Persia, and when these failed to bring any response, she set out herself under cover of night, racing across the desert by camel. This proved to be a fatal mistake, for a Roman cavalry unit picked her up and brought her to Aurelian. The game was now over. Without its queen, the Palmyran nobility decided to surrender. They were, no doubt, influenced by Aurelian's famed clemency, and if so, they were proved right, for Aurelian pardoned all the inhabitants of Palmyra, except those right at the top, including Zenobia. While the general Zabdas disappeared from history at this point, presumably because he was executed, Zenobia herself appears to have been treated with great respect. While it was almost certainly true that she was paraded through the streets of Rome in Aurelian's grand triumph held in 274, most historians accept that she was allowed to live out the rest of her life in Rome in comfortable retirement. The Augustan history says that she lived with her children in a fine villa outside Rome. The chronicler Zenarus says that she went on to marry a Roman nobleman, and the chronicler Sincellus says that he was even a senator. By any standards, Aurelian must be regarded as one of the most impressive Roman emperors. His famed clemency demonstrated that not only was he a great soldier, but that he knew that there were times when it was wiser to use compassion rather than the sword. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, can I ask a special favour, which is to leave a quick review since they're one of the best ways to get podcasts noticed. That would be fantastic. Thank you very much. And in the next episode, we'll continue with the story of Aurelian's restoration of the empire. Thanks for listening and see you next time. (laughs) 